All right, good morning again. Let's get started here today. If you were with us last Sunday, we started looking at the prophet Daniel. We're going through all of the Old Testament prophetic books, Isaiah, Jeremiah, with his appendix called Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, and then we'll be getting into the minor prophets come a little bit later this fall. But last week we started with Daniel. Today, I want to take you more into the back half of Daniel, but very specifically to the aims and end of this, this Bible class that we're doing. What I want to do is help you understand Daniel in light of the cultural, political, and religious situations of the people in Daniel's lifetime and shortly thereafter. In my opinion, Daniel is one of the most important books to do this with because Daniel tends to get jumped on with the most end time speculative kind of things, ripping it completely out of its original historic context and going haywire with it. And if you know some, you don't have to be an expert in this, but if you know some of the things going on in the time that this was written, so much of those very confusing chapters at the end start to take on a very new color and direction. So that's what we're going into today. Now I'm going to need you to pull out your stack of Bibles today and there's going to be several different versions and translations that we're going to look at. But here's where I want you to start. And I want to introduce you to a character and I just want you to Google him. And what I'm going to do is give you about three minutes and only three minutes to read as much as you can on someone known as Antiochus IV Epiphanes. So, I guess I could have put that on the screen. I didn't think I'd need it today, but you're getting dry erase board. Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Just Google them, and you'll probably get the Wikipedia page for the first one you'll go in. It's about as solid as anything and give yourself three minutes to familiarize yourself with this guy. Talk about it at your table as much as you need, that's fine. But uh, just, just get like an, a 20,000 foot view picture of who Antiochus IV Epiphanes is. Go. 10, 9, 8, 2, 1. All right. Okay. All right. Let's just paint a picture of who he is. Interesting facts or significant little bits of data that struck you. Just shout them out. I'm going to make a short list up here on the board. Struck you about this guy. Who is he? He's nuts. Yeah, and not only is he nuts, there is a... Uh, did, did, it, did the wiki article talk about how they renamed him Epimenes, playing off of Epiphany? We all know what an Epiphany is. If you grew up in a liturgical church setting, there's even a church season called Epiphany. An Epiphany is a manifestation of God. So if you have an Epiphany, it's like you're having a revelation of God. But if there is an Epiphany, it's God kind of like showing up and, and, and in a very real tangible way showing you something. Antiochus IV was not named Epiphanes by his parents, all right? That was a self-chosen designation. He, to translate it, it would be like if I, if I said, you know, I, I, I'm David Gedini the fourth Epiphanes. I am David Gedini the fourth, the manifestation of God. Not really what you want your rulers doing, 
right? And, and so the culture around him kind of coined the term going, you're not Epiphanes, man, you're Epimenes, which means Antiochus the Fourth, a madman, because they got puns in every language, Greek too. So yeah, he's nuts. What else? Probably didn't say it to his face. No, these are uh, these are behind the back comments. Absolutely, yeah, I, I think you're pretty safe to to guess that, right? Um, who is he? He's he's a ruler, but he's a ruler of what? The Seleucid Empire. You saw that in there. So, who are the Seleucids, and what are the Seleucids? I think most, if not all, of us are familiar with Alexander the Great, right? If you know the story of Alexander the Great, young kid, punk kid in his 20s, who basically dominates the known world scene in around 333 BC. We've been listing empires here, and the empire chain of world domination that we've had, and I need to board the size of this wall, but just go with me. We've had Assyria, right? And Assyria is followed by Babylon, right? Just say right, even if you don't know that, just yeah, you know. Babylon is followed by Persia. Persia is followed by Greece. Now these are generalizations, but when you think of like the ancient Near East, when you think about the ancient Mediterranean world, um, and, and of course the, the, the Middle East as well, these were the controlling rulers or dynasties. And of course, Egypt's always there kind of fighting back. But let me walk you through this. And all of this is pertinent to Daniel. Isaiah was really all about this Assyrian thing and looking forward to some of the Babylonian stuff. Jeremiah and Ezekiel are all about the Babylonian captivity that happened. Daniel is carried off in the Babylonian captivity, and he spends 80 years in Mesopotamia, where Babylon is at, and lives through the Babylonian regime and into the Persian regime. These are like 80, 90 years, something like that. But following Persia comes Greece. And the guy who really put Greece on the map, I mean, just to kind of cut to the chase, is this, um, this young punk named Alexander the Great, who basically, if you're in Israel, from the West, in Greece, starts sweeping eastward and overthrows the entire world up to the borders of India. He does it within 10 years. He dies around the age of 30 or 33 or something like that. You know, which always makes me kind of sadly reflect on maybe what I've accomplished in my life in my 30s, but you know, whatever, that's what he did. And then he died, and what happened is his kingdom was divided up among four key generals. And these numbers are important. One, two, three, four. The two kingdoms of these four named after these generals are the Seleucids and the Ptolemies. Okay? There's two others. You can wiki this stuff if you want later. You don't need to remember that right now. What you do need to remember is the Seleucids and the Ptolemies. The Ptolemies ruled over the Egyptian region. So there's like a, um, a famous landmark um, of you know, antiquity. It's the, uh, the Library of Alexandria. Have you ever heard of that? It was founded by Ptolemy II, who was the, not really pharaoh, it wasn't the proper terminology of the time, but the king from the Ptolemaic Empire. They had that whole Egyptian region. And the Seleucids had 
that, shall we say, Israel, Lebanon, Babylonian, Assyrian region. So it goes back to those two things for Israel, Egypt, right, and Assyria, those two basic regions always pinching in on Israel. Well, after Alexander dies in 300 and whatever it is, 23 BC, give or take, the Ptolemies take Egypt, the Seleucids take the Assyrian and then Middle Eastern area, and guess what you go through? Antiochus I, Antiochus II, Antiochus III, and who do you think follows him? The fourth. He's coming out of that dynasty from that division. Okay, you basically have a, a road map then to understand that? Is that kind of click the, the politics that are going on? All of Daniel is situated not only in these transitions of power, but in looking forward to how it is going to play out. And far better than taking Daniel 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11 and projecting it into some end time scenario, what you can do is pick up a good commentary on Daniel and watch how all the little moves correspond to all the events that are taking place with this Antiochus guy kind of culminating there, if you will. Now, let's keep pushing on Antiochus IV and what happened. We know he's the ruler of the Seleucid dynasty, which makes him the ruler over Jerusalem at the time of what we're going to be getting into. But did you get to the book of Maccabees part? Did, uh, did you see, uh, did you get a chance to read any of that? Summarize it for me. What basically happened during Antiochus' reign in Jerusalem and against him? Yeah. Judas. Good enough, though. Yeah. Yeah, you got it. You, you nailed it right on the head. And if you didn't... <laughs> no, no, that's great, man. And if you didn't hear Mike, because I don't want to take for granted that we're all kind of hearing it, Antiochus IV was in love with Greek culture. And one of the main things that Alexander did when he went and conquered the, no, the known world is he, and this is the proper term, he Hellenized it. Have you ever heard of Hellenization or Hellenistic or, or something like that? The way you say Greek in Greek is Hellene. So what it meant is he did a, a Greekization of the known world. Just like, you know, Germans don't call themselves Germans, they call themselves jo Deutsch, right? right? Greeks don't call themselves Greek, they call themselves Hellene or, or Hellenistic. And so he was bent on bringing the Greek language but also the Greek culture to all of these areas of the world, to Babylon, to Assyria, to Israel. And, and, and he would often do it by incentive and he would often do it by force. Well, this Antiochus guy was not only in love with the idea of Greek culture, but he saw the political power of having people unified around one culture, and he kind of amped it up where he insisted that everyone conform to Greek ways of thinking, Greek ways of worship, Greek systems of the gods, and all that kind of thing. Well, think about how well that's going to go over in Jerusalem. 
I'll give you some examples of what he did and why he gets such a, a, if you read more about this guy, why he gets such a notorious character. He made it illegal to own copies of the scriptures, and it was a death sentence to be found with them, and they would have like public book burnings in Jerusalem over this type of thing. If you circumcised your child, which of course is not just a medical thing they did back then, but necessary to be a part of the covenant, you're dead, your kid's dead. They went into the temple, which admittedly had been destroyed, but kind of rebuilt in part, and he dedicated the temple to Zeus and began sacrificing pig on the altar in the temple of Jerusalem to Zeus. How do you think that's going to go over with the Judaic culture? And of course, the Jews of ancient Israel, or better put, of this era of Israel, in many ways face what Christians have been facing in every time, space, and generation. There are some that just go, well, this is what the culture's doing. It's the path of least resistance. I know what I believe in my heart. Who cares what I do out here? And they kind of separate it and, and, and de, uh, detach themselves from, from, from belief and practice and just absorb or assimilate or, or go with the flow. You know, it keeps you alive, right? There's others that struggle with it more deeply to the point that it creates some kind of counter-reaction. And some, of course, counter-react by becoming separatist. Some kind of do it in other ways. Well, there's this guy named Judas Maccabeus. And of course, the name Judas, you probably run to like Judas in the New Testament or something like that, right? Judas was a very common name at the time of Jesus. And it goes back to not only Judas, Maccabeus, but the tribe of Judah is where it's getting inspired from. And here's how the story kind of went down. Antiochus has his forces in Jerusalem, and they're trying to put the pressure on the non-conforming Jews. And some of the local Jews who are loyalists or supporters of Antiochus just brazenly step forward into the temple area and start participating in these sacrifices. Well, there's this haggard old priest, all right? You gotta imagine like the 80-year-old piece, and I swear for the life of me, his name just went right out, my, right out of my mind. I can think of all his kids, but what's his name? Whatever, doesn't matter, you could look it up. He's filled, as the book of Maccabees puts it, with a zeal for the Lord, and he goes brave hard on him. All right, have you ever seen Braveheart? He basically picks up a spear, he drives it through two people at once, and there's this kind of whole like catharsis that happens in the moment, followed by the, oh crap, what did we just do, right? And so then he and his five sons, the key one being Judas Maccabeus, become freedom fighters, living out in the Judean wilderness. I mean, just go watch Braveheart and just transpose the story over it, and it's the exact same story, pretty much. And uh, they lead fledgling Jerusalem and what's left of Judah into not only rebellion against the empire, but freedom and independence eventually against the Seleucid kingdom and Antiochus IV, the madman. It's really actually a cool story. And, and just so you can kind of get the color for it, this guy named Judas Maccabeus. Um, no one's really sure what Maccabeus, where he gets this nickname from or what it's drawn from. But in Aramaic, the way you say like sledgehammer is like Maccabah. 
And, and so it's a nickname. He's, he's Judas the Hammer. Uh, all right, we should say everything to you. Um, totally, total William Wallace kind of character. And this rebellion starts about 167, give or take, B.C. It goes on for years, but in 164 B.C., what's significant to something Mike mentioned, and just so you know how history and culture kind of work and play out, is they find themselves holed up in Jerusalem, and there's the kind of the last vestige of a group fighting them in Jerusalem, and they're holed up in the temple, and they're trying to restore the temple and get the temple worship going back and, and get everything the way that God wants it to be, because suddenly, if we can get everything the way that God wants it to be again, maybe the kingdom of God can come and we can have that old Davidic, Solomonic kind of era again. And remember how, like, in all those parts of the Bible that you don't read, there's all these specific things that you're supposed to build and do in the temple. Like, there's the showbread that you're supposed to put out and daily sacrifices that you're supposed to make. And there's this lampstand that has eight different channels on it. And there has to be this special oil that you use to keep this lampstand burning continually. And that oil has to be prepared in a certain way. And that oil has to be consecrated. And there's this whole process. And they're looking and the oil is about to run out. And this is bad news because how do we consecrate the temple if we run out of oil? Well, as the story goes, they prayed to God and he miraculously took this little bit of oil that should have run out and made it last for the eight days until it could be, until a new batch could be consecrated. And in celebration of that and the rededication of the temple that was sparked by that, the festival you know as Hanukkah came about, which is, of course, an eight-day celebration, one for each of the days. And, you know, they called it the Festival of Lights, and John... The New Testament writer John will even talk about Jesus in Jerusalem at Hanukkah, talking about how he's the light of the world, which is really kind of cool and significant, and things like that. This is what's going on. Now, that's the fact dump. And my purpose here today is not to give you all the details that you need, because we don't have time for that, and you wouldn't remember all that. But the biggest problem I see with people in the Bible with the prophets is it's not getting a hold of resources. It's knowing where to start. And what you can do is take this little bit of mind map on Antiochus IV Epiphanes and the, the lay of the land that I've just painted for you. And you can just start Googling some of this stuff. You can just start doing Wikipedia searches and everything else, which is solid enough on this to get kind of the, you know, you know, a decent pat cut through. And if you ever get like a commentary on Daniel, what you'll see is that chapter 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11 cut this perfect path from the time of the Persia to Greek transition all the way to this Antiochus Epiphanes. Let me show you what I mean. We'll sample a little bit of it together just to kind of whet your appetite for it, and then you can go as far as you want with the rest. So if you go to Daniel chapter 7, hugely significant chapter in the Bible, including for the New Testament. I would argue it's hard to understand Jesus in his depth and the expectations of what people had around Jesus in his day if you're unfamiliar with Daniel 7, because Daniel 7 was the roadmap 
for all of the popular thinking in Jesus' day. It's confusing. There's a lot of detail. Let's do our best. In the year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions passed through his mind as he was lying on his bed. He wrote down the substance of that dream. Daniel said, in my vision at night I looked, and there before me were four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a man, and the heart of a man was given to it. That's weird. And there was before me a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard, and on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. The bird had, uh, the beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. And after that in my vision at night I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrible and frightening and very powerful. It had very large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot what was left. It was different from all the former beasts. It had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there was before me another horn, a little horn, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth that spoke boastfully. And as I looked, Thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, his hair was uh, white like wool. His throne was flaming fire, its wheels were all ablaze, a river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The others were stripped of their authority but allowed to reign for a time. And in my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming from the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power, and all peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. One of the most important things you can do when you read the prophetic literature is this. Start out here and just get the basic picture before you come into here and obsess in the details. Let's start out here in Daniel 7. He sees a vision, and there's how many beasts? Four beasts. And the four beasts have very different descriptions about them, right? And, and it seems to be even very specific. This one has three ribs in his mouth. This one is given so many horns on its head. Things of this nature, right? We come to the fourth beast, right? And this fourth beast looks like a man, but it says that there's a little horn on its head, right? And the little horn does what? It has eyes to see, and it speaks in a certain way. And how does it speak? Boastfully. And something is uprooted before him. What is it? Three horns. So he is the last of the three, the fourth of three horns, right? 
and he speaks boastfully, but he's eventually torn down too because this one called the Ancient of Days shows up and he begins to judge the world and his glory and array is unmatched. Would you agree? He's got the hair like fire or like white wool and you know, the throne of blazing fire and things like that. And then into his presence comes one like a son of man or a human is another way of putting that, right? And what does this human or son of man do? He ascends his throne. He is given the kingdom. It is an everlasting communion, uh, uh, kingdom. He is given all dominion and authority and power. And all nations and all people will worship him. That's the happy ending of the story. Right? All right. And then you sit there and you go, okay, so how do I interpret this? What do I do with this? Well, I'm not going to do that with you today, but the good news is this. If you keep reading from Daniel 7.15 on, it will interpret it for yourself. And a lot of the connections that you're making, Daniel 7, is not actually going to make. Because I say son of man and you're running to Jesus automatically. It's so clearly Jesus. But it's interesting that that's not what Daniel does with it. You can read that on your own. But he does see four beasts. Babylon, Persia, Greece, Seleucids. He sees four horns. The first, the second the third, the fourth, and he calls him a little horn. You, you see the dig? right? He calls himself Epiphanes, but Daniel calls him the little horn, who does what? He speaks boastfully. And what will happen to the little horn? It's going to be thrown down, because what's going to happen in the little horn's stead? God's going to show up and he's going to bring us back to Judah and he's going to restore our kingdom and the Messiah is going to sit or one like a son of man is going to have the throne again flowing out of all those messianic hopes, right? Do you see the hope that Daniel's pointing to? And what you can do, very it's kind of fascinating if you want to take the time, is you can go through Daniel 8 and 9 and 10 Oh, and she's Louise 11, which is just like, at first you're like, what do I do with it? And it will give you a painstaking chronology of all these little moves right up to Antiochus IV and the political reign of what's happening, not only in the Seleucid day, but leading up to it. Make sense? And that's where you just start having fun with the commentary. But I think this is even what would be uh, more beneficial for you. Take your stack of Bibles out, if you will. And hopefully by now you put the YouVersion app on your phone. If you haven't, it's free. It's zero advertising. Don't fight me on this. I hate, I hate apps. I, I really do. Just carry a thousand Bibles with you. It's just It's a wonderful tool, all right? And if you have it, you can get rid of Wiki at this point. And if you open it, um, and just download it today if you don't have it, but if you open it, you know how it gives you at the bottom where you can click read, and then you click read, and then you can go at the top, and you, I, I know you can't see this, I really should have plugged this in and blown it up, but whatever. That's why you have your phone in front of you, because I don't have to do this, right? And you can go to the top and it'll allow you, do you see that, where it allows you to pick what you want to read, for those of you familiar with this, but it also allows you to pick the translation, Here's the translation that I want you to go to. 
NRSV. You can scroll down to NRSV, but more specific than NRSV, I want you to do the one that is NRSV-CI. Do you see that? All right? NRSV-CI gives you the Catholic edition. And the reason I want you to get the Catholic edition is because it gives you access to the Apocrypha, which are those extra Old Testament books that you'll find in Catholic versions of the Bible, but that you won't find in Protestant versions of the Bible. Strangely and interestingly, the NRSV is a predominantly Protestant translation. But because of their, their, their scholarly and philosophical bent, they did extra translations of the Apocrypha and added them in as well. What that will do is give you access to First and Second Maccabees. And honestly, I think what you might find interesting to read alongside Daniel, you don't have to do the whole thing. You could just do the first few chapters. But if you enter in through NRSV-CI, Maybe just, what are we doing on time today? Maybe even just for a few minutes today and maybe 10 minutes when you go home or something like that. Read through 1 Maccabees chapter 1, 2, and 3. Because this will give you the history of what Mike mentioned earlier that I filled out here a little bit more and help you piece together these weird later events of Daniel Again, a commentary can always be helpful in that, and I can recommend them to you if you um, are looking where to start on that. But, but read it for itself. You know, just, just read Maccabees for yourself. And um, for those of you who are like, well, can I read this? Yeah. These are really good books. In fact, they're so good that they almost made the Protestant cut of the Bible. So, like, if you've ever read any evangelical author today, none of them have almost made the cut of being included in the Bible. To me, that puts Maccabees above them as good reading. Okay, so if you're having, like, what I would call, like, internal Protestant angst over this, I'm not saying they're inspired, but it will give you the history and, and, and the theology of how people thought in that era, and specifically how it carried over into the time of Jesus. So, so check that out. Maybe do a few chapters on that, and, uh, and, and it'll help you piece Daniel together. If you've got questions about Daniel, I can talk specifics with you, but I don't want to drown you in minutia. I want to give you the context so you can start reading Daniel differently and then see how Jesus will draw out of that for his own ministry. And I'll leave it at that. You can talk about good things at your tables for the rest of the time or get coffee or go to the bathroom or start a dance party or whatever um, is your pleasure. God bless. There is no 9 o'clock next week at all. From infants up to adults, it's Labor Day, so go rest, sleep late. Church is 10, and then this resumes two weeks from today. Good? God bless, guys. Thanks.